You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. So uh, welcome to the Sydney Environment Institute panels on the business making of climate change. Uh, Welcome to colleagues and students from across the University of Sydney and welcome to our guests. My name is Tanya Fiedler and I worry about a four degree world. I'm also an accounting academic and a mother of children who might live in that world and I'll be chairing this series. But before we begin proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land in which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. So, as we share our knowledge, teaching, learning, research and practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. I would also like to acknowledge the support of the Sydney Environment Institute, including its director, um, Professor David Schlossberg, um, as well as Eloise Fetterplace, Charlotte Owens and Liberty Lawson, who are floating around, um, all of whom have played an indispensable role in bringing this series to fruition. In particular, however, I would like to thank the tireless efforts of the Institute's Deputy Director, Michelle St. Anne, um, who has produced this series and supported me through our multiple discussions over many months. I would also like to acknowledge my co-author, Professor Waifong Chua, with whom I've been researching the ways in which climate science is increasingly infiltrating business decision-making, as well as the generous support of the Chartered Institute of Management Accountants in that research. So, we are fortunate um, to have with us tonight an illustrious panel, an all-female panel, Um, of speakers who all share a deep concern for the environmental and existential threats that the climate crisis poses, but who also understand that crisis through a financial lens. So they are, and um, perhaps if you could all just wave your hands, um, Emma Hurd, CEO at the Investor Group on Climate Change, uh, Kate Bromley, Head of uh, Responsible Investment at the Queensland Investment Corporation, Sarah Barker, Special Counsel and Head of Climate Risk Governance at Minter Ellison, and Gillian Reid, Principal and Senior Responsible Investment Specialist at Mercer. So... um, By viewing the climate crisis through the lens of financial and economic risk, these panellists represent an increasingly vocal and influential community within the financial sector. This community of central bankers, financial regulators, credit rating agencies, investors, analysts and advisors is already driving action well beyond that of governments. Importantly, it has the capacity to drive real and quite rapid change because of the financial levers it controls. But in this, there is, of course, a risk to financial stability, in particular if our elected officials remain ignorant and unprepared. And they are ignorant and unprepared. By contrast, the last three to five years have seen a plethora of announcements made and actions taken by representatives of the financial system who are sounding an alarm with increasing urgency and intent. So this is an alarm not often heard by those outside the financial system. It is an alarm that is either completely misunderstood or willfully misrepresented by our political elites. It is an alarm born of insights gained by those comfortable with the reading of numbers that understands that the cost to jobs, growth and the economy in a three or four degree world 
far outweigh the costs and perhaps more importantly the opportunities that would arise in a rapid decarbonisation of our economies towards a two degree or even one and a half degree world. The alarm first received real public recognition when Mark Carney, Governor of the Bank of England as well as Chair of the G20's Financial Stability Board, announced in December of 2015 the establishment of an industry-led task force on climate-related financial disclosures, a mouthful that you will hear us refer to as TCFD. So for those of you who are new to the climate and finance space, it's riddled with acronyms. So this is your introduction to one tonight, TCFD for Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. Okay. So this task force, chaired by the American businessman like Michael Bloomberg, made recommendations in 2017 that companies should include in their annual financial reports and their statements information pertaining to the risks and opportunities they face as a consequence of the climate crisis. This financial information relates to the transitional risks arising from changes in policy, technology and consumer preferences, as well as obviously the physical risks arising from chronic and acute climate and weather related events on physical assets such as property. There is also, also as um, Sarah will talk to, the increasing risks faced by investors, directors of companies and public authorities when it can be shown that they have been negligent in not taking these climate risks into account. Subsequent to the release of the TCFD recommendations, speeches, announcements and guidance have been provided in Australia, for example by Jeff Summerhays, Executive Board Member of the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, John Price, Commissioner at the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, Guy DeBell, Deputy Governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia, and the Australian Accounting Standards Board and the Auditing and Insurance Standards Board. And there has also been an influential legal opinion on directors' duties by Noel Hutley, SC, and Sebastian Hartford-Davis on instruction from Sarah Barker. The guidance and advice is consistent and clear. Climate risk is like any other financial risk, and it should be treated as such. So, the climate crisis and the economic and financial instability it will affect on individuals, corporations, investors and the global economy can therefore only be managed if information that is credible, consistent and comparable is provided to markets to enable the reallocation of capital. The business making of climate change series of talks speaks to the need for this type of information and the challenges it entails. It does so in this first panel by examining the external pressures investors are responding to, the challenges they face when trying to take climate change seriously and the ways in which they are creating change. Our second panel, to be held here on June 5th in two weeks' time, and I hope you've all registered for that because, as you can see, we've got a full house, um, then extends the discussion to corporate entities to examine the challenges they face when responding to investor pressure on climate change, the ways in which they are going about providing that information, and some of the problems that are emerging in the provision of that information. Our third and final panel, also to be held here on June 19th, so in four weeks' time, then extends the discussion even further to the scientists that are working with corporate entities so that they can provide the information the investors need. The discussion will conclude there by examining the challenges climate science and models bring to the analysis of business risk and the ways in which scientists are assisting business to overcome those challenges. But we, before we commence with our first panel, um, some housekeeping information. 
Um, so if there's some sort of emergency and you hear some sort of alarm that makes something like whoop, 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 um, then you all need to basically exit out those glass doors and head opposite, okay? Someone will lead the way, I'm sure. Okay, um, now men's and ladies' toilets are downstairs, uh, level L. I have been advised not to go there. Um, so if you can hold on, please do. Um, but in case of an emergency, please um, down to level L. Um, okay, so in terms of the format for this evening, um, I will shortly invite each of our speakers to introduce themselves and the work they are currently engaged in. We will then hear from them as they discuss um, and elaborate on some of the issues I have already highlighted. I will then open the floor to begin the Q&A for the evening, after which I will close. So, without further ado, please welcome our panellists to this evening's discussion. Okay, so I'm going to start off with Emma. Um, so your role is as CEO of the Investor Group on Climate Change. Could you tell us a little bit more about who the IGCC is, who you represent and the type of work that you're involved in? Thank you. Um, and for those of you playing acronym bingo tonight, <laughs> I get two in my title, CEO yep. and IGCC. <laughs> uh, very indicative of the, uh, the uh, prevalence of acronyms in the finance and climate space. Um, thanks very much for everyone for coming along tonight. I think this is a really cracking turnout and I think really indicative of the uh, amount of interest in uh, climate solutions, no matter where they come from. And thirdly, I just wanted to say what a pleasure it is to be on an all-female panel mm. in the finance sector. This is, I think, what's called a unicorn. <laughs> We've taken photos, that's kind of our rarity, <laughs> of, of the actual lineup. Um, and, and also what a pleasure it is to be here with this panel in particular, such an amazing uh, amount of expertise from a whole range of different perspectives as well. Uh, and me. So, um, <laughs> so I, I, IGCC, so we are an industry association founded in 2005 by super funds, by 10 founding super funds, specifically to look at the investment implications of climate change. Now we have about 75 members uh, with accumulatively about, uh, or just over two trillion in assets under management that they manage uh, and who reach around 7.5 million Australians through their, through their members, through their networks and through their employees. So uh, uh, to some extent, the growth of IGCC has also been the growth of the managed funds industry in Australia, but it's also been the story of the growth of investor appetite and interest for action on climate change. So when I say action on climate change, I also mean a couple of things that are reflective in what we do. So we, we do three things. We do policy and advocacy, clearly very successfully in Australia, on the, on the need for climate change policy uh, in order to provide investment certainty. <laughs> so, secondly, we uh, facilitate the growth in investor practice. So what do investors need to do to be accurately understanding climate change risk in their investments and in their portfolios? And then also, what do they need to be doing to capitalise on emerging opportunities uh, from the transition to a net zero emissions economy? And then also, when I say climate risk, I mean transition risk and physical risk, which is a whole plethora of terms we'll get into, so I'll, I won't 
and liability risk. <laughs> the lawyer just whispered to me. And liability risk as well in terms of failure to manage transition and physical risk as well. So investor practice is a big part of what we do. And then thirdly, we do a fair amount of industry engagement. And all of these things have changed. Uh, in terms of the weighting, we used to be predominantly policy because policy was what was going to drive investor practice. Investor practice was how do you respond to policy. Industry engagement was uh, engaging with the rest of the industry, uh, finance sector and then also the real economy or actual companies around what to do on climate change. Increasingly, what we find is that if you think of those three bars, the investor practice is the, the biggest, fattest one in the middle because there is so much going on. Policy is the hardest, the troublesome child that has to be brought to the table. It has to be done. Uh, and international and domestic policy both have to be done, but it is not the main driver necessarily for investor action anymore. And industry engagement has a number of different aspects to it now. It's engaging with the companies in your portfolios who uh, around how effectively they're responding to climate change. It's also facilitating... Uh, sort of global collaborative projects like the Climate Action 100 Plus that I can talk about more. And it's also engaging with the industry associations that companies are members of around how constructively they're contributing to the national discussion around the need for productive and constructive climate change policy and, and a clear way forward. So we, in other words, we're like a basic industry association, except that we're about investment and climate change, which is a very uh, complicated meeting of worlds, it would be fair to say. I'm also pleased to say that a large chunk of the panel are our members <laughs> and are actually leaders in their, in their area and in their field as well. So I'm also looking forward to hearing what everyone has to say. Uh, and, and, and finally, a significant part of what we do is also communicating the fact that um, the fact that so often in Australia, in particular in Australia, climate change is seen principally and primarily as a political debate. Your views are a function of who you vote for and the front page of the paper is where you go to for the current state of climate change action in Australia. But if you move to pages 2 through to 36, you hear a very different story. You see very unusual suspects talking in detail about climate change implications for their business, such as the CEO of an oil and gas company, or for their opportunity in terms of growth prospects, such as the CEO of a property management company, uh, or implications for the community if you're a doctor, or opportunities for local small business if you're a solar panel installer, uh, or uh, implications for uh, infrastructure investment if you're a transmission infrastructure owner and operator, or implications for the stability of a grid of the increasing effects of physical aspects of climate change if you're the energy market regulator. There's two conversations going on in Australia. One is on the front page. Do not be distracted by that because the real conversation is on every other page that comes afterwards as well. So Thank you, there. Emma. Thank you. Um, so on that might, note, I might go to Kate next because... Uh, you work for the Queensland Investment Corporation and they are one of the IGCC members and, um, and you are an investor. So um, could you tell me a little bit more and, and try and keep it short? <laughs> uh, a little bit more about the type of work you do. It was great, Emma. It was great. Thank you. <laughs> um, the type of work you do to facilitate the inclusion of climate change impacts into your portfolio analysis. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Tanya. And um, thank you, everyone, for coming along tonight. It's, uh, it's really nice and refreshing to actually speak to a non-investment audience. So if, if, I do, if you do find me playing Acronym Bingo as well, please call me out and I will spell it out in full. Um, 
So a very brief bit of background about QIC. We are an investment manager located in Brisbane. We are owned by the Queensland Government and work, uh, were established over 25 years ago to invest um, for the government to meet its uh, pension liabilities for its employees. Over that time, QIC has expanded to work on behalf of a range of clients across the world, including pension fund clients, um, sovereign wealth funds and other local governments and, and smaller clients in, in Brisbane. We invest predominantly in real assets. So uh, QIC has an infrastructure team investing in things like ports and airports and water treatment plants. We also have a um, significant holdings in real estate assets, including office buildings and shopping malls. And we also hold investments in fixed income, so bonds and corporate credit um, and private equity. So those are a wide range of things um, that we have to think about the implications of climate change across. Um, but one thing that, that we do and, and the thing that I do in my role is work with the organisation to, to set the vision for what we believe being a responsible investor is. And we've been very clear that as an organisation that climate risk is something that is material to us and it's material to the outcomes, to the investment outcomes of the assets that we hold and it's, it's material for society and the broader stakeholders that we work on behalf of. And I guess holding those, those assets that are real assets and operate in our community, some of them are critical pieces of infrastructure. Other things like shopping malls can be the heart of a community. So being able to manage these risks in the context of a significant presence in the community, but also operating on behalf of, of those that rely on, on these returns for their um, pensions, um, th those are the two things that we, we bear in mind. So... In investing across these assets, there are a range of things that we can do and that there's a, we're, um, we have a, a range of um, uh, opportunities to integrate climate risk into what we do. And they include things like investing in significant renewable energy generating assets. So helping to build that renewable energy capacity and directing capital in that direction. Uh, where we own and operate assets we are working to reduce our own emissions footprint and to, um, I guess, use a, a greater proportion of energy from renewable sources. And then there are other things that we, we need to look at and new skill sets that we need to build as a manager um, in, this, in this day and age, which is to really understand what the, climate, the physical climate projections mean for assets. So we have been embarking on a piece of work for the last 18 months to really get into and understand, well, what does it mean if a particular asset is going to experience 30% more days that reach a maximum temperature over 30 degrees? Or what does it mean if we're going to, to experience a one in 500 year flood? What does that mean from an operational perspective? What does that mean for the cost of running the asset? And therefore, what does that mean to the investment returns that we all generate? So um, that's a, a, quite a, a complex piece of work and, and something which is ongoing, but it's very much where we need to build our, our skill set and our understanding in this space. Okay. Thank you, Kate. Um, I'll move on to Sarah next. Um, so in your role as uh, Head of Climate Risk Governance, you frequently speak to investors such as Kate, as well as the um, directors of publicly listed companies, as will be on our second panel. Um, and I'd would like you to be able to, to, to speak to the audience about um, the, diff, the types of advice that you provide, particularly around the sort of legal and liability risks on climate change. Sure. Um, 
Well, I'm a, I'm a corporate lawyer. <laughs> I'm not an environmental lawyer. So I start from the, the baseline that don't care about penguins or forests or anyone's kids or anything like that. Care about money and care about risk. And the reason that I frame my approach to climate change through that lens is because there is a vast rump of directors who think that way. Mm. And as we know, changing minds takes time. And particularly in relation to something like climate change, which has historically been um, characterised very much as pitting the environment and money as mutually exclusive things, as a political issue, um, and as one of belief, do you believe in climate change? It's very hard to change people's minds often where their opinion on something is something that's, that's a matter of belief. It almost becomes like a religious conviction rather than something that can be changed with, with fact and reason. So I don't try to change minds in relation to the environmental damage that climate change is going to occasion upon all of us unless we pull our socks up very high and very quickly. I try and make the consequences of climate change resonate with people who hold the money through a lens that they indisputably care about and that is money, and that is not going to jail. <laughs> so about half, more than half of my practice involves going into boardrooms and talking about their duties as directors, their duties to act in the best interests of their company, which I'm more than happy to say that's just financial interests. Don't worry about, you know, the community or polluting or, you know, that's, that's all fine. We're just worried about money. And talk to them about how climate change has evolved from an environmental risk into squarely a material financial risk. Squarely. Credit markets think so. Equity markets think so. Credit ratings agencies think so. Insurers think so. And explain to them that, so it really doesn't matter what you believe about it because markets have shifted. It means that you have to respond if you want to make money. And then not only that, I talk to them about um, the, the liability exposures involved in failing to exercise due care and diligence in managing any financial risk and liabilities associated with misleading disclosure where they misrepresent um, either the um, robustness of their approach to climate change or the impacts of climate change on things like the value of their assets or the risks to the financial prospects that... that um, the issue um, manifests in. So that's basically what I do. I, I'm, I suppose, a translator. I, I, I take all the information about climate change, whether it's scientific, whether it's financial, and put it in the language of people with deep pockets. Thanks, Sarah. Um, so, Gillian, um, I've left you for last because you are involved in a particular type of work um, that helps people like those that Zoe is advising. Um, so you are involved in a piece of work that's called scenario modelling. Um, so I was wondering if you could maybe just explain a little bit about what that is and, and how it works. 
So in our role as investment consultants, we are helping super funds, uh, insurers, endowments and foundations allocate to the assets that have been talked about, so equities, real assets, you know, how much do I put in equities, how much do I put in property if I want to get this return for this <coughs> risk level. And as part of that asset allocation process, which is one of the, the pieces that we do, we also have to have those sessions talking about beliefs and setting policies and all of those kind of great things with super funds and their investment committees. But the asset allocation piece, we already use scenario analysis as a tool. So thinking about what might happen in the future, it's helping to answer the what if questions and think about if I, if this happens, am I prepared for that? What is going to be the impact on return? What might happen if inflation goes up or there's another GFC? Or We already think about those kinds of things. So we've uh, adopted the same process for climate change. Because climate change, we've not had these experiences in the past. We can't, as we typically do in financial modelling, think about what happened historically, you know, what's historical rates of interest rates or inflation or deflation or what happened before. We can't do that. So one of the only tools that we have to really think about the long term and the impacts on risk and return is scenario analysis. So Mercer, we've been talking about this for 10 years, <laughs> putting out papers. So this is, this is not a new topic for us. Uh, and we have two publicly available reports that talk about how we think about scenario analysis. So investing in a time of climate change from 2015 and then last month, we released the sequel. They are 100 pages long, but there are executive summaries of both of them. <laughs> you can <laughs> lots, <laughs> lots of pictures. But in that, it, it explains to you the scenarios that we developed. So there is no single scenarios. So we talk about two degrees, three degrees, four degrees, what does that mean? And in our work, we've come up with what we think that means for transition risk, for physical damages. If a two-degree scenario eventuates, there are different views on what that might be. And that's not a bad thing because it's not an exact science. We've put in a lot of science and a lot of modelling behind it, but it's very difficult to quantify. But using that as a tool to be able to say to an investor, this particular portfolio, so your default super fund portfolio, your endowment portfolio, in a two-degree scenario, we would expect this additional impact on return over the next 10 years or the next 20 years. In fact, we can actually do it out to 2100. And we can give them that sense and then they can, that helps them to prioritise risks and opportunities and think about how they might reallocate those assets or what else they might need to do. Great. Thank you so much, Gillian. Okay. So given the wealth of experience and expertise we clearly have on this panel, um, I'd like to invite you all to discuss some of the issues that I've already raised. Um, so one of them, so we've been talking about some of the um, external pressures uh, in, in the announcements that have been made uh, from the regulators. Um, but just wondering what other sorts of external pressures, or if, perhaps if you could also elaborate on them more, um, that investors and corporates and government entities and so forth are um, facing in responding to climate change. So whether they're regulatory trends, um, uh, domestic and international politics, uh, public sentiment, etc. cetera. Um, yeah. Who wants to start? <laughs> um, on the I, um, I actually think that, um, is that on? Is that on? 
we go. Tech solve. Um, in this sense, I actually think one of the reasons why the TCFD has been so significant is that it's provide, provided a language to uh, talk about the, the myriad complex aspects and drivers of what is you know, often sort of called somewhat reductively climate risk uh, or climate change as a financial risk. Um, it actually provides a way to, to differentiate between the different threads that are, that are influencing corporate behaviour and influencing investor decisions. And if you think about what we talked about before with transition risk and physical risk, so transition risk is regulatory and policy shifts, um, whether that's in your market, in the market you're investing into, or in the markets in which the company you're investing into is operating in. So it's not just what's happening in Australia, it's what's happening globally and in every other market that we trade with, compete with, or export to, or buy stuff from. Um, it's also technology shift, which is a whole discussion around energy, which I'm just going to like pivot to other people on the panel to talk about. Uh, changing nature of technology disruption, particularly in the energy sector, but in every sector, whether it's in ag, whether it's in uh, you know industrials, manufacturing, aviation, shipping, whatever you want to talk about, there is a decarbonisation trend which is driving technology change and disrupting industries. Um, and then you've also got uh, you know the physical side of the equation, physical risk, the effects of climate change itself, both the increasing frequency of extreme weather events, um, you know the acute shocks plus the you know the slow boiling frog of increasing heat temperatures and sea level rise, the chronic changes, which if you're a large owner of ports or airports or roads or property is something you have to factor into when you're building, buying and operating a large large asset like that. So they're, they're all the drivers. And then you've got your customers, then you've got your members, if you're members of your super fund who are writing to you every day going, where is my money invested? Is it in coal? Uh, you also have increasing amount of uh, uh, engagement from... Uh, civil society in terms of why are you contributing to the problem? What are you doing to help solve the issue, the alignment question? Uh, you have financial regulators saying, you've got a systemic financial risk, what are you doing about it? <laughs> and and then, you have, uh, then you have your lawyers telling you that you are currently or about to be sued slash go to jail for failing to have proper processes in place internally to actually be managing these issues. So what are the drivers? What are not the drivers? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, in what, in what way can you get through a business day without having some aspect of your operations now not either directly or indirectly influenced by some aspect of climate change risk? It's like saying you have no exposure to currency risk if you're an export-oriented uh, company. Mm. You know, it's, it's just not, it's not a sustainable position to hold in many ways, I think is, is my position. Just to pick up on one of those comments you made, Emma, around writing to your super fund, um, one of my other hats I said on the board of one of the big super funds, if we get seven letters out of our 140,000 members on something, that is a tsunami <laughs> of, of angst. So I really would encourage you to use your voice and, and, and do write to your super funds because even if there was a dozen people, that is actually going to shift policy or at least make the super funds think about why this is the case because we know that most people are totally disengaged with their super. Um, I think the biggest influence is coming from an area that hasn't been mentioned and this is about to explode. So bit of a bit of a riddle, who is more boring, conservative and money driven than a lawyer? 
and the Prime Minister. <laughs> Accountants. Sorry, John. <laughs> Accountants. The Accounting Standards Board and the Auditing Standards Board have recently released joint guidance on how in the financial statements that a company publishes, how they need to start integrating their assumptions around climate futures into the accounting estimates in their financial statements. And so from this reporting season, the auditors are going to be asking them specific questions about those assumptions and the reasonableness of those assumptions and whether if there are other equally reasonable assumptions that would have a material impact on the valuation, they need to be disclosed. So I think it's going to be a really, really interesting and critical few months when for the first time we have auditors actually being forced to quantify and ask questions about the quantification of what this means for the figures. Good luck that to we the auditors have, that we that we haven't had before, and and yes, the auditors themselves might need a little bit of upskilling. Mm. Um, but um, but on that, um, I mentioned yeah yeah. <laughs> um, John Purcell from CPA Australia has been quite heavily involved in in the background there as a head of ESG at CPA Australia in in um, educating the standard setters around the issues here, and then they in turn. Mm when they understand the issues, I don't want to say do the dirty work for you, but, but when they're exposed to the same information as we understand through their lens, the APRAs, the ASICs, the RBAs, all those acronyms, the Standards Accounting Board, they have influence over the people with the money. And, and then the politics really just falls away once that happens. Um, I would just quickly add something. I think Emma, Emma very comprehensively covered the convergence of external pressures that, that we see um, really driving this momentum behind um, responding to, to climate change. But as an investor, one of the things that we do see is um, that shift in public sentiment that Emma was talking about that flows through into consumer preference and consumer behaviour. So if we're investing in businesses that are either high emitters or have a... Um, a bad reputation for not being as sustainable as they could be, then it's in our interest as an investor to use our influence and to work with those companies to, to change their practice or to, or to think about new ways of doing things. And that might be um, moving into areas that aren't traditionally associated with, with being high emitters or maybe very complex and challenging, such as agriculture. And is it, is it possible to, to work with a business to make it more sustainable in its practices to lower its emissions and... Um, and still generate a, um, a, an income for, for those that invest in it. But it's really about working with those companies to see how they can change, and that's in response to all of these pressures that we're seeing. Do you want to...? So I would agree with all of the points that have been made, and it is coming from lots of different places. There has been a significant shift in the last four years thanks to the Paris Agreement, the Sustainable Development Goals, Mark Carney... Regulation. So I was in the UK for the last four years. The regulation in Europe is, not surprisingly, much clearer than here. So it's very clear that it is part of pension funds, super funds, fiduciary duty to assess climate change risk. So there's all sorts of activity uh, going on there. So we might not have the same regulatory pressure here, but even our Reserve Bank is talking about it. You know, it is coming. 
but certainly the, the letters from uh, pension fund members, super fund members is key. <laughs> Students at universities making their voices heard, all of these things really do change the dynamic. And trustees are definitely moving, so there is a lot of activity uh, that is happening at the moment and that is growing. But trustees, just as a bit of a reality check, so you, they don't move quickly. <laughs> Literally or metaphorically. Any of those things. <laughs> I have been talking about this for a long time. I think you can... I think I speak fairly clearly. I, I have good pictures. I have data. I have reports. I, thank you. The designer was excellent. <laughs> But it is really, it is not how I articulate this. It is often the pressure from members, the pressure from regulators, that additional pressure that's really going to move this. And we all need all of the pressure everywhere to make this happen faster. Okay, so given these pressures, um, companies are beginning to disclose in increasing numbers. Um, but is this the information you need? So is it complete? Is it comparable? Um, is it credible? Uh, <laughs> There's a couple of points. I mean, is it useful, investable? You just ask ASIC because they put out a whole report that said a big fat no. Um, and uh, not just in terms of financial filings but also in other relevant pieces of um, financial disclosure. So whether it's uh, IPOs, for example, uh, it's insufficient reporting. Um, <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> um, Oh, that's what you were saying, yeah. Oh. Sorry, I'll spell out the acronym, sorry. <laughs> um, so, no is the short answer. But, and also just to really reiterate that point around um, outcome and process are both important. I think one of the really interesting things about um, the TCFD reporting is that companies will often report a rosy picture having undertaken their scenario analysis and they'll report maybe um, the, the, the slither of the actual depth of the information that they've undertaken and said, that's all we can report because it's commercially sensitive. And then coincidentally, six months later, make a, an abrupt pivot in their business uh, portfolio and sell off their coal holdings. Um, or start marketing, my other favourite is start marketing themselves as the world's first fossil-free mining company. <laughs> Real, true fact. Um, so... You know, the, the importance of the TCFD is it's an iterative process. The framing and the language cannot be underestimated in how important that is in terms of driving change. The actual reports being produced are not yet fit for purpose but are getting better, but they're not yet fit for purpose and there's not enough of them. Um, but the effect that they're having with each iteration in terms of the process and the internal influence that they're having on the companies themselves also, I think, shouldn't be underestimated over time. If in five years' time every scenario analysis is still saying we're good to go in a, in a three-degree world, then I think we have a problem with the, um, the kind of uh, inherent logic of the process. But, you know, I think there's also... It, there's, there's a few different aspects to it in terms of answering that question as well. Em, I just want to say on that, if we do get to a point where in five years' time they're all saying we're totally good to go but nobody owns any coal or gas exposures anymore, that at least will be yeah. half, of the, <laughs> half of the goal. Yes, that's a very good point. <laughs> I was just going to add that the TCFD uh, framework, and that's what it is, it's a disclosure framework, is applicable for uh, all actors within the financial system. So we've been speaking about companies and companies are the first port of order. I mean, we need the companies to disclose 
so that anyone else further up the food chain then knows what to do with that risk. But it's also applicable to fund managers who are investing in the companies and the asset owners who are appointing the fund managers who are investing in the companies. So at the moment, the pressure is on the companies because we really need them to, to act to get that information so the, the owners and the fund managers can assess. But it is also happening at the top level because the framework includes four pieces. There's a governance piece and a strategy piece, and then you get down to the detail about risk management and then metrics and targets. And certainly what the TCFD is already prompting right now is exactly to Zoe's point that it's making asset owners and asset managers and companies think about the governance of this, that this needs to sit at a board level. This cannot be your ESG or sustainability person sitting in the corner trying to work out how to do a report. This has to be owned by the board. And that is happening right through the system. So none of us have all the answers on the metrics beyond carbon footprinting and a few other things, because until the companies start disclosing properly, we won't have them. But the governance piece is starting to happen already, slowly. I agree, and, and I would just pick up on, on Emma's point and, and Jillian's point around that momentum building and having this framework in place. The first year of reporting might not be as insightful as, as you may have hoped, um, but it is an aspirational framework and it is bringing these conversations and those considerations exactly from a sustainability department into more mainstream considerations within a company. And, and also, as Gillian pointed out, um, a lot of my role and the role of my team is to go to the assets that we invest in in the companies and ask these questions. How are you thinking through climate risk? What is your strategy? Um, as well as disclosing the data. And we do also um, recognize that in doing that, we need to, to respond to the, the TCFD as well. So as somebody who is seeking this information and simultaneously um, getting, getting our own response together, we published ours last year for the first time, we recognize that likewise our response may not be as fulsome as we would like it to be next year or as it will be this year and the years going forward, but it is a process to, to gather the data and build the processes to be able to report on this risk in all its many dimensions in a, in a comprehensive and um, credible way. Okay. I did have another question, but I think we're going to leave it because it'd be great to um, have some questions coming from the audience. So I will open the floor up now. However, I have some rules. Okay. So um, my first rule is please do not be shy. Okay. I know that there are a number of students in this audience who may feel that they um, lack the necessary expertise or insights to ask questions, but as I tell my own students, there's no question that's too stupid, okay? So just go for it. Um, second rule is ask questions first. And if you have some comments, maybe one or two, to sort of give some context, but if it extends beyond that, I will shut you down. Okay, third rule is if we get a whole lot of white men asking questions, I will start prefer preferentially, uh, preferentially selecting women and people of colour. Okay, other than that, go for it. Hi there. Sorry, I'm oh, kind of white. Sorry. <laughs> I, I had one more rule, sorry, and that is please state who your question is for on the panel. St sorry, what was that? 
please state who your question is for on the panel and who you are. Okay. Yes, thank you. Yep. Uh, my name's Julian Artis. Um, I work in the planning area. I have a question for Kate Bromley, and it's in relation to um, Castle Towers. I understand, Castle, that's a big asset of yours, as I understand, Kate. Um, and what I've heard is it's something like $900 million of investment proposed or something in that area. Look, I may not know numbers exactly, but this is just what I've heard. You know much better than me, of course, because you work there, I don't. Um, and it's going to become, like, the biggest shopping centre in, like, the southern hemisphere, what I've heard, bigger than it will surpass Chadston, as I understand. The new metro station just been built next door. I've been working on that. We've got a nice little access point for you. You just need to break through the wall and in you go. Um, my question is with the sort of work that you do, what kind of uh, responsible investment considerations have you made for that an investment of that size for your organisation, seeing it's such a significant part of your asset holding, as I understand? Absolutely. Thank you for the question. Um, I should say up front that I, I don't have a lot of detail on that particular development within our real estate team, we do have a national sustainability manager who is responsible for um, integrating um, our ESG standards into assets at development level. But I can talk broadly to what those standards are and what is applied generally across the portfolio. Um, so we, we would look at a range of, of initiatives and we do have a set of mandatory considerations that would be applied to any new development. And those range from things like the types of building materials used to installing um, things like mandatory LED lighting and making sure that the building operates as efficiently as it possibly can and employs a range of sustainability initiatives to do that. There's also further um, broader initiatives that QIC Global Real Estate is implementing across its portfolio, and those are to meet targets that it's set um, to reduce emissions across the fleet, and those are initiatives like um, rolling out PV solar across the assets. We have a target to uh, source 30% uh, of our baseload power from renewable sources by 2025. Um, we've also invested recently in some uh, metering, smart metering that runs across the full fleet of assets. These enable us to have real-time data on um, energy and, and, and water and, and other, um, other things that we consume. And as part of that, we've also been able to, to use that data and across the portfolio run the assets far more efficiently and fine-tune the buildings. They're, they're very complex assets. Some of them have 900 pieces of plant and equipment and various kit that all operates together to, to, to run the assets. So working with a, an external consultant to really optimise the building and bring about significant emissions reductions through those types of means is another way that, that QIC is um, thinking through those things. My name is Joe Nagy. I'm a former credit risk manager. I've written a book on a subject, so my interest in the panel and what's happening is risk. What are you going to do about businesses at believing that they're going to tell you what's going wrong with their business in terms of climate change? That has never happened uh, in the GFC. And secondly, the most important thing of all, and none of you have mentioned, what are you going to do to the rule makers, our government, to get them to put some muscle behind the things that you're trying to do to make things happen? Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I might start with the second question first, actually. Um, you know, this is a really 
uh, I don't think I'd be shocking anyone in this room by saying this is a really hard issue for Australia. And there are legitimate reasons why it is a really hard issue for Australia. We are a very carbon intensive economy and very exposed to the physical risks of climate change. Uh, it's a large portion of our national revenue base comes from activities which are very carbon intensive. And there are a number, there are many communities and lots of people who work in them who are directly and personally affected by the, the transition that we're talking about. And these are all perfectly legitimate concerns. I think the challenge that we have in Australia, Australia's challenge is the global economy's challenge. How do you willingly choose to fundamentally rewire your economy for the sake of an environmental and a social outcome for the benefit of future generations? So it, it's, I, I don't think we should be beating ourselves up too much on you know, how long it's taking us to get there because Australia's challenge is the world's challenge in many ways. My second point is that we have not been helped in resolving this necessarily by the tenor of the political debate that we've had. We haven't really had a constructive and honest discussion of the real issues that Australia is going to face. And we also have not had a full acknowledgement of the huge opportunities mm. there for Australia as well. Yes, we mine coal. We also mine lithium. We also have so many of the other materials that are required for the decarbonisation of the global economy. And, and I, I, I just don't see very many Australian politicians selling us the vision of the future where Australia is just as prosperous, just as safe and just as employed in a, in a net zero emissions economy. So I think that the, you know, the, the, the challenges are real, but the vision has not been sold to us. And we saw that, particularly just to comment briefly on this most recent election, which I'm sure is very top of mind. I think it's an interesting contrast that public sentiment and support and concern about climate change has arguably never been higher, but it didn't translate to voting in marginal seats that changed the government. So we, we, you know, we've, we've, we've definitely having a national conversation in a way that we've never had before. But we, the, the majority of people in the majority of seats are not sold on the solutions, among other issues, enough to actually change the government on it yet. The economy connection wasn't made. I mean, actually, well, this is one of the yeah. things that we're really grappling yeah. with as well. We had a whole conversation about the costs of one policy solution based on one set of figures. We didn't have the other side of that yeah. equation, which is the cost of failing to act mm -hmm. and actually dealing with the cost of climate change itself. And we didn't really have a... I mean, if you think back to the last five weeks, there was a lot of footage on the news every night. Does anybody remember a detailed discussion around the pros and cons of different policy options for dealing with climate change? Mm. Or the pros and cons or the costs and benefits of different policy solutions on climate change? Or if you are an employer in Queens... If you're a worker in Queensland, what's your job going to be in 20 years? Um, or if you're a, uh, a, a, you know, someone in WA, what's your job going to be in 20 years? Like, you know, we didn't really have a proper conversation about it and we still haven't yet. It doesn't mean that it's not, that conversation is not happening. It's just not happening, as I said, on the front page of the paper. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm self-conscious about using up the quota for white blokes. Um, sorry. The, ne the next one's a woman. Great. <laughs> uh, my name's Josh. I'm an ESG consultant and a recent graduate at the School of Geosciences. Uh, Gillian, you mentioned that you do have scientific input to your decision making. Could you comment specifically on what that science is? Uh, and Sarah, I'm fascinated to know a bit more about why there is such a fundamental disrespect and disregard to scientific inputs into decision making at a board level. I'm wondering if you could comment on that, please. 
the modelling process that we used, uh, so last time and this time we relied on external input, uh, which is an econometric model, but based underneath that is an integrated assessment model, otherwise known as an IAM, which is the one that we used with the Gini model, which is all about transition risk. So in that modelling, that's drawing, it's less scientific this bit, but the transition risk is really uh, making assumptions and predictions about policy changes, technology developments, how quickly all of these things would happen in a two-degree scenario or a three-degree scenario, et cetera. So we've used that Gini climate model and the Cambridge econometrics is the group that we used on the transition risk. On the physical damages, so last time we used the fund model. Again, it's an integrated assessment model. And what that means is it's trying to combine environmental, you know, scientific data about environmental perils, so what's happening with wildfires, what's happening with coastal flooding, sea level rise, all of that kind of environmental climate science and how is the planet responding to different emissions levels and temperature levels and then on top of that add in what is the economic damage so people will talk about economic damages or physical damages in an economic way so that last time we used the fund model and dice model because fund underestimates agriculture this time we went bottom up and used academic papers one on coastal flooding, one on agriculture, one on wildfires. Because from us, for us from an investment perspective, we are trying to assess the impact for different asset classes in different regions, different industry sectors, so we need some granularity. So from a scientific point of view, we've gone as, you know, we've taken as much uh, environmental data as we can, but there are lots of gaps. So you'll see in the report, there's a whole cautionary tale section about all what is missing. So getting more environmental data to plug into all of those models is really important. Thanks, Josh. That's a really interesting question about why there is such a disrespect for science. And I ask myself that all the time, because would you go to consult a neurosurgeon and say, oh, I think you're just in this for the money and even though you tell, you're telling me that this is the issue, well, I reckon it's all fine and Panadol will solve it. <laughs> it's the only area of science that gets questioned and, and I, think, I think there are three reasons for that. First of all, the fact that climate change has evolved in its nature. Historically, it was an environmental issue, a non-financial issue, an ethical lefty hippie granny socialist issue, and it has changed. And usually issues don't change in their complexion from being non-financial to financial, I think is the first reason. The second reason is unlike anything else, climate-related risks are inherently forward-looking. The, the, the only certainty we have about it is that both now and the future are completely different from any historical analogue. And that's really, really difficult for uh, boards to handle, both either in a risk management perspective or in a disclosure perspective, because they get very, very nervous about a lack of certainty, because lack of certainty means risk. Um, I think it is changing, because they now understand that the only defence if, if, if for no other reason, the only defence that they have to be able to establish that they have exercised due care and diligence 
and have a robust process that sits under their strategy that then enables them to accurately make disclosures about the true nature of the risk to the business is to actually get expert advice on it. And if you want some great bedtime reading, I would look at the other Royal Commission, which was the Royal Commission into the Murray-Darling Basin that was released uh, a few days before the Banking Royal Commission report. Have a look at Chapter 5. In Chapter 5, that the technical legal term is... Actually, I'm not going to use the technical legal term because it's actually really rude and this is being recorded. Um, <laughs> but Commissioner Walker was investigating um, the the failure of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority to take scientific evidence provided by CSIRO into account about the projections for water flows in the Murray-Darling Basin. And he was excoriating. He used words like mal malfeasance, negligence, indefensibility, incomprehensibility and the things that he said that were negligent were first of all the, the failure to take climate projections into account, second of all um, the notion that because of the uncertainty involved in the climate projections that that meant it was all too hard and they didn't need to think about it um, and thirdly, that the, it was an issue that they could legitimately defer to the next 10-year planning cycle instead of dealing with it now. All of those things, the Commissioner said, that is negligent. So I think we, we really are starting to see that shift towards the necessity to take comp, uh, uh, um, advice, expert advice on this and to be doing this properly on a forward-looking basis. Tanya, can I just make a comment on that point about why science isn't taken seriously in this case? Um, there's a lot of money at stake. And I, to defer to history, tobacco and asbestos were also hugely, hugely debated for 50 years. And there was heaps and heaps of science and everyone said this is definitely, definitely happening. And the company said it's definitely, definitely not happening. And it all got very contentious and the public debate got muddied. There's a lot of money on the table here. And when there's a lot of money on the table, there seem to be ways to take that science and make it less certain than it apparently was. If you want to say something, Julian? Just very quickly to back that up. The, um, the points that have been made here should hopefully give you a sense that we talk about energy as, you know, we talk about energy as, the, it's the starting point. If we're actually going to achieve a two-degree scenario outcome or ideally below, we need to change the entire economy. We are talking transformative change everywhere on everything. So there is a lot of money at stake, not just the energy companies, but everything. So that complexity, the cash that's on the table, and the way that humans make decisions, the righteous mind would be my recommendation, if you don't want to know the answer to something, or willful blindness is another one, if, you don't, if your gut tells you, I don't want to know the answer to that, it doesn't matter how many facts are on the table, you will ignore it. So there is a combination of the emotional piece and the factual piece, and they need to come together. Thank you. Okay. Yep. 
Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm a lawyer also that working in the climate change space at Breaking McKenzie. Hi. Um, Zoe, you mentioned that um, you're seeing from your experience some investors pretty cagey about the risk disclosures in their financial statements based on the TCFD guidelines. The TCFD guidelines also recommend disclosing climate opportunities and I just wondered if you could comment a bit on that, what you're seeing and what is you know appropriate for a healthy market um, that you would want to see from investors in terms of those guidelines? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, uh, you know you see you're seeing some interesting examples now emerging of how different organisations are tackling this this question, um, not just of the uh, how do you positively report on the opportunity side, but also how do you tell tell the integrated story of the transition and that you're positioning well for it. And I've seen, uh, there's a couple of good examples that I, uh, one good example that I've seen was actually not an investor, it was a bank, and I won't name names, um, who were talking about, they told an integrated story about both their risk exposure and also their increasing exposure to opportunity across the energy spectrum. And they had this uh, flow diagram graph that had numbers on, um, you know, within the financial year, exposure to thermal coal generation, mining, gas, um, and then exposure to renewables broken down by solar and wind and storage. And then they had them colour-coded in terms of red was decreasing and green was increasing. And then they just put the actual dollars over the last three years next to those categories and you saw the shift. One side of the ledger was all red, as in they were decreasing their exposure, and the other side of the ledger was all green, as in they were increasing their exposure. And you got the integrated story of how their whole energy portfolio was tilting uh, along in alignment with the transition. Mm -hmm. And then at the bottom, they linked to their credit risk policies. And so they weren't necessarily giving away forward-looking commercial information around, obviously, well, I mean, they were pretty much telling everyone what they were doing. But, like, you know, they were actually telling the, a story that was the sum of the parts on how they were managing the transition and trying to increase their exposure to opportunities while still effectively making money out of on the way out of the old industries. So there are ways to do the disclosure which is actually telling a narrative which is more than just one, that one point of data is this the, you know, the one data point to rule them all that tells you that you've got, you've got your hands on the opportunity. And the other, the other part of it is also... What are the enablers of your ability to access opportunity? Are you investing in um, skills and expertise of your directors? Like, do you have climate expertise or expertise in new emerging industries in your management team? Are you setting up new divisions? Are you investing in, in uh, capex in, in new innovation streams? Um, have you got emission reduction targets linked to remuneration in your executive team? Do you have investment in innovation linked to the KPIs in your executive team? Often you have to look at the spread to get a real sense of whether the company's taking it seriously or not. And they might not tell you every bit of data that comes out of the scenario analysis, but six months after they've done it and you begin to see that kind of really integrated storytelling going on, then you begin to see they've made some pretty serious decisions on where they think their industry is going and how they want to get ahead in it as well. It doesn't mean they're doing it all perfectly yet. Yes, they're probably still making money, as I said, on the way out of one part of it, but they're clearly communicating a transition is underway in their own business as well. Hi. Um, I am a student of sustainability, so not business or finance background, um, and I've just been doing a business subject, which has kind of blown my mind. Um, and I went to my super and, and said, I, you know, 
what's my exposure? I want to get out. Ethic, I would like to be more ethical. And they were kind of like, well, what does ethical mean? And is the company that builds the pipeline that pipes the gas, do they count as being not ethical or not? So I ended up digging down way more than I ever wanted to into ethical investments. So my question was going to be um, for someone who is just a consumer with super, um, like how do we kind of move that or know that it's sort of ethical um, and based on what? Everyone's backing away from the microphone. No, I'll, I'll take this one. <laughs> so, <laughs> when we are advising, I'm going to go top down and then I'm going to come to bottom up. When we're advising a super fund, so if you think about how your investment committee and boards are making decisions, when we're thinking about an issue like climate change or any kind of ESG issue, financial issue, we think about four strategies. So one of them is called ESG integration. So that is what we've been doing for more than 10 years. Good people like Kate have been doing this for a long time. It's how do you think about environmental, social and governance factors from a financial perspective? So that is the first strategy. The second is active ownership or stewardship. So saying, I own this company. I'm going to engage with the company to say, I like 90% of what you're doing, but I think that other 10% is of financial risk. I want you to stop doing that. Or what is your strategy? So it's engaging with companies. How do we vote at AGMs would be the other part of that active ownership piece. The third one is investment. So how are, we, how are uh, pension funds investing in sustainability themes, so in the opportunity side? So I would say the first two are quite risk management focused, but thinking about the opportunity side and thematically would be the third. And then the fourth one is divestment or what do you not want to be investing in? So I would describe the first three as focused on risk and return. I then have a little diagram, like a recycling diagram, so risk return, and the third one is reputation. And increasingly, you know, we don't actually invest in a vacuum. <laughs> so we, we do increasingly have our investment clients thinking about their reputation, thinking about their stakeholder requirements, thinking about the future, and sometimes they decide um, not just on fossil fuel topics, but historically, you know, tobacco has been a, a great example here of what's happened. And some of that is financially driven. You know, the pricing might not be there right now, but you can see the writing on the wall. So some of it is that, but some of it is stakeholder driven. Now, all of those considerations should be happening within a default superannuation fund. You know, nothing to do with having to make an ethical option. All of those things that we've talked about and particularly given tonight we're talking about what is happening on climate change, all of that should be happening as standard. As soon as you start to get into ethics, and, and, we, and we do talk about it, but it's more difficult when you've got a, a group of members invested in the one pool to make sure that the decisions that you're making are, are right for everybody. Now, it came to a point in this market environment that tobacco became a kind of one that we can agree on. Cluster bombs is the other one we seem to be able to agree on. We seem to agree there's a couple of ways that are bad to kill people. Cluster bombs, landmines, chemical weapons. We seem to have agreed that they're a bad option. As soon as you go beyond that, you can start to get into some, some differences. And, of course, when we're making those decisions, 
yeah, some of our clients will decide not to invest in certain things, but they will have also thought about the risk and return in doing that. So sometimes, yes, it'll be ethical options to get some more of those screens, but a lot of what we're talking about here should actually be happening with standard. Okay, Zoe, I... sorry, can I cut you short? Sorry, we've got two more questions we're going to take and we're really running out of time. Is that okay? Thank you. <laughs> Go to the RIA website, Responsible Investment Association of Australasia, and there's a tool that you can put in where you can put in your ethical preferences and it'll spit out a product that's best for you. Yep, okay, all right. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. In the same way you buy anything, right? You pick the company, you pick the product. So I would just sort of say choose the fund, choose the uh, fund investment option, and that's where all of that the, the detail pick comes in on board. And then also I would just lastly say also choose the kind of financial future you want to have as well. So don't forget, the, um, don't forget that it's your retirement savings and invest for the longer term. Not that I'm giving financial advice in any way, shape or form. That was not financial advice. Okay. One more question that's got to be very, very short. And okay, hi. As well. Sorry. That's okay. Um, my name is Sandra. Um, I just wanted your opinion on whether um, animal agriculture is talked about in the investment community. Um, we know that 51% of global greenhouse gases are produced because of livestock and their byproducts. So I'm curious to know if animal ag is um, considered, uh, is talked about, because it's definitely not talked about in mainstream media. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. I'm taking this as the resident vegan on the panel. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, nowhere near as much as it should be. And again, there's a disconnect if you have a look at the analysis that the Responsible Investment Association does every year of the issues that concern consumers of financial products. Animal welfare comes up as number one. But it is a very nascent in terms of... Um, flow through to um, investment portfolios in terms of valuation. On climate change, though, it is starting to shift. You might have seen last Wednesday in the New Zealand Parliament, they introduced their zero carbon bill into the Parliament. It separates out biogenic methane because nearly half the emissions in that country are uh, methane and nitrous oxide related from cows and sheep, basically. So they've separated those out, but they still have... Um, um, proposing a legislative requirement to reduce methane, biogenic methane, by 10% by 2030 and between a third and 47% by mid-century. So there is, from a climate change perspective, this recognition that livestock in particular um, is a very, very high-emitting sector and there was a study published, you might want to see in The Guardian last week as well, that showed that if we're going to stay below two degrees... Um, we're going to have to cut our consumption of beef, chicken, pork um, and lamb by between 70 and 90%. So it is going to become a, a financial issue as well as a, a lefty, hippie, greeny, vegan animal welfare issue in terms of emissions costing and reduction very quickly. It is, a, it is coming onto the agenda. It is more recent. Uh, there's a group called FAIR which is um, looking at uh, in industrial agriculture in particular, but looking at it from an investment perspective and risk and return. And it's making the... Because industrial agriculture in particular brings together deforestation issues, climate change issues, transport issues, waste issues. It, 
And the other beauty is uh, antibiotic resistance in humans. So when you put all of those things together, there's a really, there's quite a story coming together. So there's certainly been more activity on that in the last few years than there has been before. Okay, last one. Just a very, very quick um, follow-up to that. Uh, as an investor in a, an agriculture business, um, we absolutely see animal welfare as one of the key um, areas for concern in, in that particular asset. And one of the things QIC does uh, or adopts as a philosophy is um, we call it active asset management, which is working very closely with the companies to address the issues that we do see as being material. So we have um, worked with the asset to undertake a, a very detailed ESG review, identified animal welfare as a key issue, and, and isolated what we believe are the practices in that particular context that we would like to see to ensure that animal welfare is, um, is sort of practiced to the highest standards. So there is that ability to influence and work with the businesses that you invest in to adopt um, better practices in this area and align to uh, standards that you see as being, um, I guess, desirable in that area too. Okay, thanks, Kate. Okay, I know that there were one or two others, uh, no, certainly here at the front, um, that had a question, so maybe you can just grab the person at the end, so I apologise for that. Look, I am so grateful um, to this panel for coming to Sydney and talking, I suppose, outside of their usual day-to-day -day, um, sort of experience and, and uh, yep, talking to students and educating us on, on the work that they're doing. Um, really, really grateful to you all for doing that. Um, I'm sure you'll agree um, that they provide an illuminating discussion um, on the complexities and challenges we're facing. So if we could all just please thank the panel. Thank you also very much to you for the questions that you asked. And as already mentioned, there's another panel in two weeks' time, which is focusing on the corporates. And in two weeks after that, it's focusing on the work that scientists are doing. So please do register if you want to come along. Um, and just in closing, remember to write to your super fund. Thank you, everyone.